0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Deirdre Boza in for
2: Kelly Evans, and here's what is ahead on The Exchange. Stocks trying to avoid, avoid a fourth day of losses, but on track for a losing month. Could we see markets retest those June lows? One of our guests says no, but he is trimming his exposure. He says you got to be selective. The three names that he is buying right now, plus... The countdown to Friday's Key Employment Report continues, so does our series on the state of jobs across sectors. Today, we are drilling down on education, the CEO of Pearson. He'll join us with the one thing he says is crucial in attracting talent in his field, and three more names on deck with results, what you need to know, and how to position on Pure Storage, Five below and Signet Jewelers. That is ahead in earnings. Exchange. We begin with today's markets. Dom Chu here with the numbers. Dom, it's been a choppy session, choppy
3: it, month. It has been, it's but it's November. it's it's been stable, relatively speaking, right? Because we saw some big year. moves. Yeah, I mean, check this out. We're going to end the month, as Deirdre points out here, with some fractional moves, at least for right now. On the high side and the low side, we haven't seen more than fractional gains and losses. But right now, the Dow Industrial is down about 70 points. That's about a quarter percent drop right there. The S&P 500 still again below that 4,000 mark, 3980 down five points off about one-tenth of one percent. And just about flat, just slightly negative for the Nasdaq Composite, down eight points, 11,875. And by the way, each of these three major indices is now for the month down roughly three and a half to four percent. So it's been pretty broad based and even with regard to the market losses in the month of August. Now, if you take a look at the out and underperformers from a sector perspective within the S&P 500, the real one you have to key on here is the underperformance in technology. One of the worst performing, in fact, the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 for the month of August and it makes a lot of difference because tech is the biggest sector in the S&P with some of the most high-profile names. Meanwhile, maybe no surprise given energy's move higher medium term that it's still one of the better-performing sectors on the month despite the slide in oil prices as of late. But utilities helping to lead the way higher as well, not something you really want to see if you're a real bull on the market. So watch that dynamic play out. And then if you're looking for a stock of the day, It's got to be Bed Bath & Beyond. It's not in the S&P 500. It's not that big, but what a storyline. The struggling retailer is down 23% right now off its session lows. It comes out with an update for its restructuring plan. It's solidified some financing, new lines of credit, some loans taken out. It's also going to sell a lot more shares. The dilutive effect may be having an effect on those share prices to the downside. But they're going to close stores. They're going to lay off staff. On one side of things, some people feel restructuring Deirdre is a good thing, but for Bed Bath & Beyond... Maybe the dilutive effect of selling more shares is outweighing any kind of positivity they have right now. We'll watch those shares, Bed Bath & Beyond, Deirdre.
2: Yeah, Uh, you said it, Dom. What a story. Um, No Adam Aaron story here quite yet. I guess there's still time to see, but wow, down 20%. Uh, Meanwhile, stocks, they continue to struggle to snap their three-day losing streak. Our next guest says the recent rally off the bottom went too far too fast. He has trimmed his equity exposure as a result, but says there are still some good under-the-radar picks out there. Let's bring in Christian Ledeau. He is director of Invest. Research at CapTrust. Uh, Christian, thanks for being with us this afternoon. You were never in the camp that the Fed would pause or even reverse course. Um, you're watching inflation data very quickly. What are you looking for to tell you whether to get back in or not?
4: Well, uh, uh, nice to be with you, Deidre. Um, we're really watching the short rates. Uh, we've seen in this recent uh, bear market that the stock directions are really paired off of in an inverse way the direction of short rates. And of course, that's a call on the Fed. Of course, uh, you know, if they're going to be going to 4%, we're going to have to see higher, higher short rates. But uh, we don't think they might may not have to get there. Uh, more importantly, we're just watching the inflation data to, to give us a guide as to which direction they'll go.
2: Right. But that inflation data, despite what we heard from Fed Chair Powell on Friday, has actually been trending a little bit softer. How much of that trend do you need to see? Could you argue that jobs may be the more important indicator here? As Powell says, there's got to be more pain ahead.
4: Uh, Yeah. And we're watching the components of inflation very carefully. Certainly gasoline prices are are an important component and it's going in the right direction. Uh, You know, bit by bit, I think we're going to chip away at that big number and get down to a more manageable number very soon. Uh, We don't know just how much uh, uh, the Fed will actually need to see in order to start uh, taking their pedal off the gas.
2: What's the risk that they don't take the pedal off the gas and they overextend and put the economy into a deeper recession than perhaps they could have?
4: Well, there's always that risk, and that's why uh, investing in stocks isn't easy. Uh, But we still think that there is some good value here. And if the long end of the curve, the 10-year yield, sticks around the 3% where it's been for a while, uh, we can regain a 20 PE on the S&P 500. And, of course, companies have really managed this well with earnings still increasing. So we anticipate there's a a good story for stocks over the next 12 to 24 months.
2: Right. And I want to get to some of your picks, Christian. You like Broadcom. Um, You call it a great tech value play.
4: Yes, indeed. So Broadcom is uh, uh, the 800-pound gorilla in a a niche within uh, semiconductors. They actually sell software as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Their their products are mainly interconnect, and they bring storage to the computing landscape and networking hardware. Uh, Not as sexy as some of the NVIDIAs or AMDs out there, uh, but this is a free cash flow machine. It's uh, producing twice as much free cash flow as NVIDIA and trades at half the valuation. Which is very attractive. And of course, it uh, pays a nice three percent dividend, actually three and a half percent dividend. Right.
2: Also very acquisitive. We talk about Hoctan a lot on TechCheck. Um, is he going to be able to pull off VMware? Does that buying spree continue? Can they keep their margins where it's at if it does?
4: Well, he's been very successful growing this company for decades uh, through acquisition and, and organic growth. So we anticipate he will be successful with VMware.
2: Christian, thank you so much for being with us. I'll mention a few of your other picks as well. United Therapeutics and Jacob Solutions. We'll get to them next time. Meantime, volatile trading in European natural gas futures, even as Russia once again stops flows to Germany through its Nord Stream pipeline, there is more to the story than just that. And Brian Sullivan is here with the latest. Brian, you always have the whole story.
5: Uh, I don't know if i do this time, but because you know why, Deirdre? We've done it before, and I guess we're doing it again Russia shutting off the Nord Stream 1 pipeline once again. Now, unlike in July when we were over there in Germany, that was 10 days. This pipeline shut down, expected to be offline for three days. Now, once again, Gazprom's Russia, Russia's Gazprom is calling this maintenance on that turbine engine. Germany, I'm just going to summarize, calling that a lie, saying that it could operate fully. Either way, it was at 20%. Right now, it is flowing at 0%. Again, three days time, that's when it's expected. So really overnight, September 2nd going into September 3rd is when it should turn back on. When it does, by the way, if it does, it should be only again at 20%. Now you're looking at natural gas futures and it's been a long time since I've said this, but European natural gas futures are actually down today and down fairly considerably over the last couple of sessions. How come? It's because there is optimism, Deirdre, that Germany will hit that gas storage total. But remember, just because the storage tanks may get almost all the way filled, does not mean the problem is solved. Normally storage gets drawn almost all the way down, even with gas flows continuing. Now gas flows, they're off, we'll see what happens. And by the way, spot natural gas prices in Europe are up 740%, even with today's climb in one year. Okay, that's not all. Gazprom is also threatening to cut off French utility NG. It's not a lot of France's gas, but it just adds concerns about what Gazprom's longer-term intentions are. Clearly, energy is being used as an economic and really political and humanitarian weapon. Yep. Deirdre. Um,
2: Brian, thanks for breaking that down. I want to get to another story in the energy space that is a little bit closer to home. I know you've had a close eye on, and that is New England's electric grid. Some comments. That could be potentially very worrying out of there, saying that they're at risk of turning into Germany and that is not having enough um, or adequate energy grid without natural gas.
5: This story, I don't know why it's not getting more attention. I know it's wonky, but I, I, it kind of blew my mind. We did it this morning on WEX. On Monday, the, the systems grid operator known as ISO, Independent Systems Operator in New England came out with a draft document of kind of what they're gonna present to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission at a meeting on September 8th. It's a long document. It is a little bit wonky. It's kind of a word salad. I'll just summarize to your point. They basically said, listen, we've got one LNG import terminal in Everett, Massachusetts. We don't have sufficient pipeline capacity. I know we're working toward what they call a clean energy transition, but we need natural gas. And they effectively said, If we don't sort of get our regulatory and reality sort of in line, because what people say and what the reality is, Mm. is often very different, there is a risk to, and this is their term, adequate energy supply in the next couple of years. Doesn't mean tomorrow, Deirdre, Mm. but I think when one of the biggest electric grid operators in America, Boston, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Bangor, all those places, when they start warning that their grid and the power supply may be at risk, yep. and they reference Germany? I think we got to stand up and listen to that. Not a lot of other coverage on it, but that's what makes us special, Deirdre.
2: <laughs> that's what, you, what makes you special, Brian. That's how, why we have you on for some of these under-the-radar stories, which, as you said, could actually turn into something much bigger. Thank you. Coming up, RBC is going into the new Cold War, initiating coverage of a number of defense stocks. The analyst behind that call joins us next with the names. He expects to beat the market in the near and the long term, plus Pure Storage, Five Below, and signet They're all on deck with results. We have the numbers and the narratives that you need to know ahead of their reports. The exchange is back right
1: after this. This is... The Exchange on CNBC.
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue
6: your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,
2: Welcome back to the exchange. The Spider SP Aerospace and Defense ATF down 10% so far this year. But it is a different story for some of these defense names. Northup Grumman up about 24% in 2022. General Dynamics up 11%. L3 Harris up 9% so far this year. So majorly outperforming the broader markets. My next guest is initiating coverage on the group with an outperform rating. L3, his top pick, but he says there are short and long-term catalysts for all three of them. Let's bring in Ken Herbert. He is the managing director and aerospace and defense analyst with RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Ken, th- thanks for being with us. Let me start with a stat that was in your note. The defense sector is trading at a PE of 19 times. That is a 5% premium to the market compared to an 11% discount with a 10-year average. So these are relatively expensive. Why buy them now?
1: Yeah. Hi, Deidre, Good afternoon. I mean, that's a great question, but I do think we are uh, looking at a, at a new reality here, and I'd highlight a number of reasons. One, just very tactically near term, if you're concerned about sort of broader economic pressure, these stocks tend to outperform in rising rate environments. You can get access to a sector that generates phenomenal cash flow, likely uh, upside to estimates in 23 and 24. And then you've also got a, a sector, I think, that's going to benefit from fundamentals that are strengthening and, and not fully reflected in sentiment. So I do think it's a it's a sector, to your point, that ha- has had a great run this year. Uh, I do think there's more upside to come, especially with some of the stocks that are better positioned.
2: But, Ken, if the economy is in for more pain. Inflation remains high. So lawmakers have to have their eye on food prices and gas prices. Um, does the defense budget get cut? Is it intact? Where does it sort of rate among priorities?
1: Uh, I would argue that it rates relatively high. I think, one, the defense budget and defense spending in particular is a a good way to put money back into the economy. I would argue that if you look at where the budget is today, you've got very broad-based political support for elevated elevated defense spending, uh, both across Democrats and Republicans. I think we're entering a period of modernization specifically around some of the legacy nuclear programs that uh, should drive some upside so you've certainly got supply chain risk your point about inflation is is obviously a key critical issue these companies are facing higher costs there's limits naturally to how much they can pass on so companies under some firm fixed price contractual structures will face incremental headwinds but ideally is that normalizes i think in the in the next couple of years we're looking at you know, low to mid single digit growth in mm-hmm. real defense spending, uh, which would be incrementally positive.
2: Plus capital returns, right? In a rising rate environment, shareholders love dividends and buybacks. And this is a sector that skews towards that, right, Ken? Um, but also there's talk of consolidation and more M&A activity. How should investors balance the two? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think I think there's going to be limited consolidation at the at the prime contractor level. I think the Biden administration's been pretty clear. That uh, that that we shouldn't expect more of that. Uh, and to your point, you're right. These companies over the next two to three years likely return 100% of their free cash to shareholders, both through a mix of of dividends and buybacks. So that should be incrementally positive and help provide a floor, certainly on valuations for these stocks. I do expect continued consolidation among some of the smaller companies, um, but I don't expect m and to be a big use of capital. I expect a lot of it to get returned to shareholders.
2: And, Ken, um, in your note, you also said that persistent China risk will support long-term sentiment and funding upside. Uh, but I wonder, is that short-term risk increasing as well this morning? I'm sure you saw the headlines. Taiwan vowing to counterattack if Chinese forces enter its territory amid military exercises around the island by China. Is, could this be a shorter-term catalyst, too? <laughs>
1: It's possible. I mean, you certainly don't hope that we get more catalysts than we've seen. I do think a couple of things I would say. One, near term, I think the situation in Eastern Europe has proven to be a lot more uh, longer term, maybe a problematic than, than I think we'd all expected six to nine months ago. So that likely continues to provide a near term catalyst. I think what you've seen initially is obviously a lot of the, the, the aid efforts and shipments by the United States have come out of existing inventory. So that's probably more of a 23, 24 story and upside for a lot of the companies. You know, I think the the situation with China, and when you think about sort of near-peer threats and and competition, whether it be up in space, whether it be cyber, whether it be certainly around Taiwan and in the sea, um, is is not going to go away. I think that persists. Hopefully, it doesn't yeah. uh, get worse for obvious reasons. But I think it will continue to be in the background to some extent and continue to drive uh, a focus on funding and and national defense, which which again elevates uh, the defense budget.
2: Well, Ken, it was a good view of the sector. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Ken Herbert, RBC.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Still ahead, PayPal is on pace to post back-to-back monthly gains for the first time since early last year. We will look at what is driving that turnaround. Plus, we're continuing our State of job series with a look at the education sector. We will speak to the CEO of Pearson about what he is seeing in the space as students head back to school this fall. The Exchange is back right after this.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Check out markets right now. They are off session lows, but still in negative territories. The Dow was up as much as 175 points and down as much as 120. All three of these indexes on pace for losses this month. We want to get to some of the biggest movers as well. Uh, Shares popping nearly 8%, snap that is, on their restructuring memo. The company plans to cut 20% of jobs, pull back on spending on products and content. This comes as two top ad executives leave for Netflix, and the company's value has dropped by 8%. 80% 80% since the beginning of the year. So is this enough of a turnaround? Julia Borston has the story. Uh, Julia, there's been a lot of volatility in this name. First, they were down on the news. Now they're up. And it seems like the markets are saying that the worst is behind it. Can we be that confident?
7: Well, investors seem relieved to see Snap making these changes in order to really focus in on key priorities. There are three priorities that CEO Evan Spiegel lays out here growing Snap's user base growing revenue, and also on improving augmented reality tools. Now, the cuts that they announced will generate about $500 million of cost savings on an annualized basis. And Snap is also creating this new role of chief operating officer, promoting Jerry Hunter. He was previously SVP of engineering into this new role. And here he will also oversee product and sales. Now, what is really moving the stock today, though, is Snap's revenue growth. So far this quarter, it's 8%. That's a big jump, jump from the revenue that the company reported in the first three weeks of the quarter when they reported earnings on July 21st. The revenue growth, though, is down still, though, from the 13 percent growth reported in Q2. CEO Evan Spiegel saying that as they focus on their priorities, they will discontinue investment in Snap Originals, Minis, Games and Pixie, the flying selfie drone this all comes after yesterday, Snap's chief business officer Jeremy Gordon Gorman and Peter Naylor, who's VP of Americas, announced that they're leaving Snap for Netflix, B of A warning that their departures and the layoffs, quote, could be disruptive for sales over the next few quarters and would likely be perceived negatively by the street. Piper Sandler, more positive on the news today, saying, quote, management looks correct in right sizing the business, both for operating focus and to withstand a challenging market. We are also seeing meta shares get a lift today, um, perhaps on Snap's uptake and ad growth in the past month. Deirdre, that could be indicating that maybe there was a lull right in the middle of the summer, but things are picking up again.
2: Right. So, Julie, investors are happy that Snap is taking some tough cost-cutting measures, but does it really change the fundamentals for this business? We've been talking about it all year, right? Their ad model, you could argue, is most vulnerable to the macro. They've even said themselves that direct response advertising is easiest for, for advertisers to switch on or take out altogether. How are they going to get numbers up or even recover, especially when we're seeing those ad dollars go to places like Google or Amazon even.
7: Yeah, I mean, they did lay out some of the challenges they're facing. That's the the challenge of Apple's operating system change and other platform changes that are making it harder to target and measure the impact of their ads. There's the macro environment, which is tough. And then, of course, increasing competition from the likes of TikTok. But what they're trying to do here is cut down costs, especially in the marketing. They think that they'll be able to really improve profitability. They're going to keep their their employee base when it comes to things like um, the safety of the platform. But when it comes to marketing, that's where where they think they can really make cuts and where they can improve profitability. But I think, Deirdre, this is a company that went from having a ton of experiments, things yeah. that might yield returns, say, a decade down the line. Now they're saying, you know what, we have our core business here. We have this strength in augmented reality, which is a great tool for advertisers, mm-hmm. particularly in the retail space. We're just going to focus in here and not have all these other things that might just be too costly without the upside mm-hmm. in the Right. Term. But
2: those experiment- experimentations, those Products, whether it be original content or content rather or hardware, I mean that's helped keep their user base loyal, and its user base is actually growing at a better rate than others in the space. 28 million DAUs versus yeah. 23 million at Twitter. Yeah. So why is it lagging behind in yeah. annual revenue? Is this a monetization problem? And if they're now scaling back, how do they improve that?
7: Well, I think what's interesting is I feel like this hardware business that Snap has had, though it's been really fun and I've had fun playing around with their their Snap <laughs> spectacles, I don't think it's really been meaningful to the bottom line. And I don't think it's been meaningful to their core user base who, you know, who open up the Snap app every day to right. message with their friends. So I think what they're trying to figure out is what are the things that are not essential and hardware really does not seem essential, especially the flying pixie drone as soon <laughs> as cool as it seemed. So I think what they are focusing on is monetization. And the reason yeah. why um, Um, the augmented reality business is so essential is they've always been ahead, Mm -hmm. even ahead of meta when it comes to AR. That was always core to what Snap was about. And they're able to use augmented reality to drive advertising around things like trying on clothes, trying on makeup, trying on sunglasses. And that's what they're trying to to lean into, which is their advantage. Obviously, they're much smaller than a meta, but in comparison to something like a Twitter, they have been growing growing faster from a user perspective.
2: Right. And they're not scaling back on that area on augmented reality. Julia Borson, thank you very much. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a news update. Tyler.
8: Dieter, thank you very much. Uh, new York State is restricting guns in what it calls sensitive places, including Times Square, parks, churches, theaters. It is part of a new law passed after the Supreme Court decision in June that expanded gun rights. The New York law also requires deeper background checks and training requirements for gun permits. The head of the FDA urging teens and adults to get updated COVID booster shots, saying the new shots can help the nation stay ahead of new surges in COVID cases. The FDA expects to authorize updated vaccines for younger ages within a month or two. On the news with Shepard Smith tonight, using steam to go off the grid. How a whole community in Texas is using geothermal and solar for its energy needs. That's at 7 p.m. tonight. Join Shep for that. And in Spain, a messy tradition has returned. Thousands of people took part in the famous Tomatina food fight today. For just $12, people got a chance to hurl tomatoes at each other. No shortage of ammo there. 130 tons of overripe fruit was trucked in, Deirdre, especially for the event. We should do that here.
3: Of a
2: tomato food fight in, in yeah. the studio. It's fun. <laughs> fun. let you start that Look one. Look at those tomatoes. What a sauce I'll you can make. I'll it out.
4: <laughs> See ya. Thanks,
2: Tyler. Coming up Pure Storage, Five Blow, and Signet Jewelers getting ready to report. We will have the action, the story, and the trade on all three in Earnings Exchange. That's up next. Welcome back. We are nearing the end of earnings season, but there are still a few key names on deck. Today, we are getting the action, the story, and the trade on data deals and diamonds. We are going to start with the data. Pure storage reports after the bell today. Shares lower into the print, but it has been A relatively bright spot in the beaten down tech sector, up nearly 25 percent from its 52-week low in May. Dominique Chu has the story on pure storage, and Danielle Shea has the trades. She's director of options at Simpler Trading. Dom, it is a relative outperformer, and I was looking to it. It's year-to-date performance only down 11 percent, which is kind of a win in this market for tech.
3: It's absolutely a win here. So let's start off with some of the estimates that we'll be looking for. Traders are going to be watching the data storage and cloud computing company to come up with at least expectations for earnings per share of 22 cents. The revenues are expected to be around $634 million. Now, its products let companies manage their public and hybrid cloud computing platforms. And they've been, we know, in heavy demand given the shift to remote and hybrid work as a result of the virus pandemic. That plays into the things to watch for in Pure Storage. It's seen strong growth in its revenue momentum, especially in that key subscription-related category of annual recurring revenue, kind of like what we talked about in CrowdStrike Mm -hmm. yesterday. But as we learned with a more traditional data storage maker in Seagate earlier this morning, companies that they deal with are getting more conservative about their enterprise tech spending. So does that same thing play out with a cloud storage company like Pure Storage? As for how the stock could trade, the options traders out there are expecting this stock to move trade up or down by over 11 percent after earnings. So some fireworks. But believe it or not, D., That's less volatile than it is traded post earnings in the last four quarters. And by the way, in each of those last four reports, that stock has surged. Hmm. So we'll have to watch to see whether or not this expectations game plays out this time around. The
2: expectations game, Dom, thank you very much. Uh, Danielle, Dom mentioned Seagate, but we also spoke to the CEO of HPE this morning and they had pretty good results. They make equipment in data centers. What are you expecting for pure storage tonight?
0: You know I really like Pure storage I think that it's an incredible relative strength winner right now I love the way that the stock has reacted the last five quarters over earnings I mean even last quarter when we were in a pretty volatile situation and you know tech is weak tech is weak right now and this is a relative strength winner so if you look at the chart of pure storage you can see that it's up above key support. Pretty close to those previous highs I like the target of $35 a share on this one and if we can make that target then I'm going to continue targeting up t- upwards to $40 a share so I like this one I think that if it does happen to have. A volatile quarter, and we get a little bit of weakness, I would buy it on the dip.
2: Okay, so it could be an opportunity. Uh, Next up, let's get to value retailer Five Below. UBS cut its price target on the stock yesterday, warning the company has strong competition in the discount retail space. Shares have fallen more than five percent after Five's last two reports. They're down nearly forty percent this year, underperforming the S and P retail sector. Courtney Reagan has the story on Five Below. We talked big lots earlier, Courtney. So what are we expecting? What are some of the differences for Five Below?
9: Yeah, so Five Below is a little different. It's not a closeout, and it's not a dollar store. It's somewhere in between. It's sort of low-priced goods, often aimed at kids or party favors that kind of stuff. And it's one of the retailers actually D that is still expanding its US footprint. It's adding stores, but of course, we know that a lot of the goals for doubling sales revenue and earnings by 2025 and tripling stores by 2030 were stated well before we saw inflation hit 40-year peak levels. So the analyst community wants to know, are those still the targets? Is that still the target date when you're looking at expanding this name? We it will be reporting the second quarter. But of course, it's always about guidance and looking ahead. Looking at Q3, usually a lighter quarter for sales for this particular retailer. So that's sort of what we're going to be expecting from the results today. And then the other question, of course, is as gas gas prices have fallen a little bit, Has it driven more traffic and sales to this name? Hmm. The last point I would make is that there's not a real opportunity for trade down within five below, meaning the prices are relatively tightly priced and the average basket size is usually about $15. And so I think the analysts want to know, has the average basket size gotten smaller as opposed to the opportunity for trading down to a private label, which doesn't exactly exist in the same way at five
10: below
2: as it does with some other retailers? Right. Great overview, Courtney. I'm Danielle this is not a stock that you like. You actually expect it to retest 2022 lows at some point.
0: Yes, that's correct. I think that this stock has relative weakness in the space. I know that it's slightly different than Dollar General, Dollar Tree. But I mean, look at those companies and how well they're performing comparatively to five below. Um, We have a variety of economic issues, which Courtney discussed currently. But Honestly, looking at the chart is what I think is the most important. If you look at the weekly chart, you can see that it's in an overall downtrend downtrend and there's quite a bit of overhead resistance as well. We have about a $10 expected move on earnings, but yet you have overhead resistance at 140 and at 150. So even if they do manage to get slightly better numbers than expected and rally, it's just going to rally directly into key resistance. So in the long term, I'm looking for this stock to continue falling and retest 2022 lows
2: okay we'll keep an eye out finally guys want to get to signet Jewelers set to report before the bell tomorrow the stock is up nearly 24 percent over the past two months but it is still lower by nearly 25 percent this year signet has beaten estimates for the past three quor- three years straight excuse me but the company lowered its q2 and full year outlook after sales softened last month courtney what are we looking for here
9: the idea. so because the company pre-announced earlier this month its sales and its operating income, we don't expect a lot of surprises for Signet Jewelers. You may not be as familiar with the parent company named Signet, but it's the owner of brands like Zales and K Jewelers, Jared the Galleria of Jewelry, Piercing Pagoda, and all of those. So a lot of them are mall-based. Of course, we continue to be concerned with what's going on with the foot traffic in malls. And as gas prices continue to be well above last year's levels, the concern is the amount of traffic and trips that shoppers are making to the malls. Is that impacting Signet Jewelers? Also, Signet Jewelers sells a lot of products that is very, very discretionary. If you're gonna cut back on something, I feel like a diamond bracelet is the first thing that you're going to cut back on. So I'm not sure that we're expecting a lot of surprises here and I think the discretionary
2: spin concern is pretty key with this one. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I, it's, I'm it's, i troubled to think of something more discretionary than a Signet. Danielle, <laughs> what are you expecting then? Where could the upside surprise be?
0: So, you know I completely agree with Courtney it would make sense that consumers would cut back on diamonds but at the same time I can't help but notice the way that it's recovered off of the lows I think that the technical chart has improved significantly over the course of the last month we're now up above support and there's a couple different factors that I'm looking at as well for example the last two quarters on earnings despite the bear market and ongoing macroeconomic issues. This stock was able to trade higher post earnings. And because of the fact that they have already pre announced, I'm not expecting a massive downside surprise. So, for that reason, I think that if it can remain stable post earnings, we can continue following the short term uptrend and trade it up into about $75, $80 before we hit key resistance
2: right I guess you're talking short term Danielle but if the economy is set to soften further the long term trend for this uh, company seems pretty clear right or what are some of the factors that investors need to look at.
0: Absolutely so for this one I'm really looking at more of a short term trade especially because it does have high short interest and a lot of the time when you're nearing those resistance levels you can see a chart trade higher due to short covering. Um, So in the short term I like it higher but I think in the longer term it's just going to be all about earnings because the main reason why I do like this stock right here is because they've done well the past two quarters in the current environment if that changes and what we see from this company is that they start missing numbers and they're changing guidance and they're noting a massive impact um, at that point I would shift into the Mm -hmm. longer term downtrend.
2: And look at that chart over the last two years, up nearly 300 percent. Courtney Reagan, Danielle Shea of Simpler Trading, thank you both very much. Coming up, Bank of America bullish on Elliott Management's involvement in PayPal. That upgrade pushing shares higher. And if you're an investor who follows the activists, there could be a lot more buying opportunities ahead. And we will tell you why. That's up next. And a quick check on the markets, the Dow uh, nearing session. It is down about 180 points, nearly the S&P down half a percent to the Nasdaq down four tenths of a percent. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Take a look at shares of PayPal. They are higher today on a bullish Bank of America note. Analysts upgrading the stock to a buy on upside earnings. Potential driven by cost-cutting and share buybacks, which they believe will be pushed by activist Elliott Management. Elliott disclosed you might remember a $2 billion stake in PayPal earlier this month. And thanks to a new rule that goes into effect tomorrow, there could be a whole lot more activism ahead. Leslie Picker joins me now to break down those details. Leslie.
10: Hey, Deirdre. Yeah, we could see a lot more activism in the months ahead. A somewhat technical rule change in the way active uh, investors can vote is set to take effect tomorrow. This involves something called the universal proxy card. In battles over the board, investors can now vote on any mix of their preferred director candidates. Think of it like voting for some Democratic candidates, some Republican candidates in a political election. Previously, investors selected either the management slate or the dissident slate. In other words, with that political analogy, they would have voted for a one-party ticket. Sidley Austin's Kyle Lekafed, who co-leads the firm's corporate defense practice, says this will be a boon to activists who were popping champagne when the rule change was first passed by the SEC.
0: Activists believe that the new rule
7: change will give them more leverage. They will believe that they win one or two seats in a proxy fight anyway. That in turn means that they're going to ask for more during settlement discussions. And uh, that's going to make it harder for parties to, re, uh, to, to achieve a limited settlement and amicable resolution outside the proxy.
10: The SEC says that the rule change puts proxy voters on equal footing with the small minority of investors who attend meetings in person where they can and have previously been able to vote for their preferred mix of candidates. Chair Gary Gensler has said, quote, this is an important aspect of shareholder democracy.
2: Deirdre. Leslie, I know that you've been talking throughout the day how one director can make a difference if you have someone who's loud and pushes for a lot of change, like a Nelson Peltz. Um, But what about all the other ones that you don't necessarily hear about? Do you think that this will encourage some activist investors to be more aggressive once they come on the board? How does that change the strategy for the normal activist investor that may not be a household name?
10: I think one thing that we could see is, given that so much more of the voting is indicative of the merits of each individual candidate, one thing that experts say is we'll see a lot more personal attacks or looking at personal vulnerabilities on the specific boards. And so you'll start to get a sense of maybe it could push activists to have, say, one or two higher quality candidates Mm -hmm. uh, that they put forth as a result of this even more so than they would have previously because those candidates have a higher chance of getting on the board. Therefore, they may be it depends on how you define quality. But if it's for the right. activists for a certain proposal or strategic change, they may be more vocal in the boardroom as a result of that.
2: Fascinating development uh, will be interesting to see how it plays out. Leslie Picker, thank you. Speaking of activists investing in Leslie Picker, CNBC is delivering alpha returns in person on September 28th. The world's top investors will discuss risk, opportunity and navigating the new market dynamic. You can scan the QR code right there on your screen or go to cnbcevents.com to register. Coming up, the back to school season is upon us, but there are still hundreds of thousands of open teaching jobs. We will dig into what one executive calls the shift in the education industry and what can be done to attract workers. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. That Crucial July jobs report is just two days away now. All this week, we've been taking a look at the employment picture in different areas of the economy. Today, we are focusing on education. As First Lady Jill Biden meets with Cabinet members and executives at the White House to discuss the nationwide teacher shortage, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are currently more than 200,000 educational job openings. Joining me now is Andy Byrd, CEO of the online education platform Pearson. Andy, thank you so much for being with us. I wonder if you could start by just laying out the challenges you guys provide products and services to the educational sector. So you do have this broad view.
11: Yes, well, thank you, Deirdre, for inviting me on this show. It's a pleasure to be here. I think um, the pandemic has illustrated and acted as an accelerant uh, across the education sector. The education sector in the whole was one of the last sectors to truly be transformed through a digital revolution. Mm -hmm. And whether we were at school or at college or at university, we really saw that hit hard during the pandemic where teachers, schools, establishments had to really transform the way that they taught, you know, remote learning. Um, and I think that's had a knock on effect, both good and bad in the in the sector as a whole.
2: So how are you viewing hiring at Pearson? You're serving the sector. Are you looking to hire more people this year or scale down?
11: No, no, no. We're, we're, we're hiring more people and we're hiring them for different skills. I think one of the, the trends that you're seeing across many sectors in the education sector is certainly true, is this transformation into digital learning and into lifelong learning. So we're um, employing a lot more people uh, s- with skills in IT, in technology. We launched a product for U.S. College called Pearson Plus, which is an online learning platform that delivers your learning materials and videos and study materials. And so we're focused on really bringing in new skills mm. into the company um, as, as we adapt ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm. So you are actually competing with tech companies that often offer, you know, great incentives, higher pay. How are you finding that competition, especially we talk about it all the time, is a lot of tech companies are either freezing or they're doing layoffs.
11: Well, I think at the heart of what Pearson does is we, we, we add life to a lifetime of learning. And uh, that purpose, mm-hmm. um, the mission that we're on to help, every individual on the planet improve their lives, whether you're learning a language, whether you're at school, at university, or increasingly at work. It's a very, very powerful message. and as you know we, we, we want to create an, uh, an all-inclusive culture uh, within the company and make sure that we give challenging and exciting and rewarding tasks to the employees who work for us.
2: And Andy, finally, because we have you and at the top of mind, I want to ask for your view on what we just heard out of the White House from President Biden on student loan forgiveness. Um, do you think that this addresses the problem? Is it enough? Do we need more reform here?
11: I think it's a great step forward. Um, you know, the, the issue of student debt in the United States is a real, real issue. You know, You have individuals who are spending up to four years of their life and many tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Uh, as they go through a college and university education. And increasingly now there's an alternative route, and that's to to learn while you earn at work. And so I think, you know, formal institutional education is so, so important for the future of this country. And so the steps that President Biden announced um, a few days ago uh, are really welcome.
2: But does it get to the root of the issue, which is rising tuition costs, Andy? Um, how do you think that that plays into the sector and especially what you do?
11: I think you're seeing a much more hybrid approach. And I think, you know, the, the more forward learning, uh, leaning uh, institutions are looking at this more hybrid on campus, digital, a lot more online learning, mm-hmm. more skills based learning. And that in, and in that way, you can create a more modular um, education for higher education construct. And hopefully that makes it more affordable. Um, to individual learners.
2: Right. And you're doing that in your own business as well, right? Uh, you guys are embracing hybrid and remote work. And your employees are responding well to that or potential hires?
11: Yeah, I think hybrid working is here to stay. And we've we, we, from very early on, there was a couple of things that we did that uh, I think were very important. We didn't lay off any of our employees. So there was no furlough. And we introduced flexible working. And we also reimagined what an office should look like. So an office is around creating community, creating connectivity, creativity, and embracing that culture. And gave you know, responsibility to an individual employee to decide when and where and how they want to work. And we've actually seen our productivity increase.
2: Hmm. Andy, thanks so much for being with us. Andy Bird, Pearson, see you. Still ahead, fall brings cooler weather. It could also bring cooler travel prices. We will tell you why next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We want to get to one more thing before we go. The unofficial end of summer is just a few days away, and that could be good news for travelers. Seema Modi joins me now with that story. I've been waiting for something like this, but it's just a school start, so demand is going to be coming down too, that's which exactly is part of right. it, right? No, you're exactly right. The surge in
12: travel, Deidre, that we saw over the summer is starting to ease, and that's going to bring prices down with it this fall. Hotel rates across the nation have cooled a bit already. We peaked in late July at $159 a night. We're now at around $147, that according to SDR. According to Greg Miller at Truist, a 10% decline in prices, that can bring profits of hotel owners down about 15 to 20%. That's why we watch that ADR rate so closely. Travel hotspots, Maui, Florida Keys are not seeing any softness in price just yet. Travelers are certainly gravitating, though, towards big cities this fall. TripAdvisor says the most popular destinations this fall, New York, Las Vegas, and Orlando. Data from Priceline also shows car rental prices have started to ease as well. We're down about 11% from the six-week average. Vacation rental rates are expected to drop at a faster pace than hotels, with AirDNA projecting a 2023 rate cut Uh, to half of next year to 3.4% as travelers transition from expensive vacation destinations to smaller urban units that tend to be a bit cheaper. So I think this will be a big trend, Deidre, going into the earnings season for names like Expedia that I cover, Airbnb in your wheelhouse, if they can't protect their price, how are they going to bring the margins that they have over the last couple of years?
2: And a lot of them, I know Airbnb in particular, moved out to more rural places, national parks during the pandemic. I guess this is a real test. Have they sort of brought up their city supply?
12: Same with Verbo, right? They re- same thing that they did as well. They really tried to double down on that inventory in those beach leisure uh, destinations. But now yeah. as... Travelers pivot back to cities. Does that give hotels
2: an edge? That's going to be something we watch this fall. One place you missed out on that where I'm certain prices are still high. Tell Disneyland. Me. Oh, yeah, Because I've been checking. I've been canceling my, tip, my trip because they're
12: still too high. Very high, right? Theme parks have been a big trend this yeah. season. Spending is already back to 2019 levels, according to the latest credit They've card held strong, to data. my dismay. Sima, thank you so much. That
2: does it
0: for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day.